Welcome to the 90 or Nothing podcast with hosts Paxton Pulford and Kylie Barnett. This week, we catch up with Matt Moffat and Cameron Parker. Matt's a horse trainer located up in Rockhampton and trains horses for camp drafting and the snaffle bit cutting. And Cameron Parker is a helicopter pilot that actually has a fair involvement in the horse industry and loves training and showing horses and uh, has been quite the mentor for Matt. These two are great mates and we thought it'd just be a really great story to capture. We were up in Rockhampton the other day and we were filming Matt for Camp Draft Training Online. So make sure you check out his videos as they're just coming out this week. So be sure to jump on www.teamcto.com.au and subscribe so you can find out the latest videos. Well guys, we'll get stuck right on in. And this interview is proudly brought to you by Camp Draft Training Online and select size. Well, g'day, fellas. I'm glad I got you on the line here. Um, describe to us your situation. I, I feel like um, it's a bit, you're in a bit of a tough position here getting this podcast done in these technical ways. But um, <laughs> how, how are you guys positioned there? Hey, Paxson. Uh, we're sort of uh, we're in a vehicle, got the heater on. I uh, got a pair of earphones between us. Uh, we're like a romantic couple sitting in a car. Our heads are about a foot apart, and we're cuddled up here. It's quite awkward, actually. But we're looking oh. now. That we're looking. We're both looking out the window. So looking, that's any better. We're opposite. We're back to back here. <laughs> oh, very good. Now, well, thanks, guys, for um, joining us on this. Um, we just spent a couple of days um, up at Rockhampton filming with Maddie for Camp Draft Training Online. So we thought we'd jump on and get a podcast with him and, and Cameron Parker because uh, we, we actually filmed at Cameron's place. So, yeah, thanks, guys, for letting us get up there and do that. We had a great time. No, no thank you, mate. Thanks very much. And uh, I'd also like to thank Ben Rossiter and, and his team, you, for coming up and filming and um yeah, it was a great time, and hopefully um, my little bit of knowledge might be able to help someone out. So thank you. Yeah, for sure. Well, guys, let's just um, – for this podcast, we sort of want to learn about you two and uh, the relationship you guys have formed and, and um, sort of the way you guys go about things. So take us to, to the start. Where did you guys sort of um, come across one another? Um, so. It's a bit of a oh well, not a long story, but um, Cameron had a black a black acres mare that was going through Tamworth wholesale, which is now Nutrient Classic. And um, I rang him up one day. I wanted to come out and have a look at her because I saved a bunch of money up from from work and I just left school and I sold a few horses I had before and had a bit of money in the bank, so I wanted to go horse shopping. So I came out to Cameron's and he let me come out here to his place and I rocked up and here was this big beautiful black mare and. She caught me eye the first five minutes I was here. So um, anyway, Cameron said, grab a bridle and get on that horse and go for a ride. And I thought, holy dooly, look, this is pretty cool. So I uh, ventured off and rode the horse and, and fell in love with her, um, as you do when you're only 17 and there's a beautiful big Black Acres Destiny man in front of you. And, um, and yeah, long story short, went down the landmark to um, to try and purchase this mare. And... Um, I didn't pull it off. I run, I run out of money. I think the first bid might have been thirty thousand dollars, and 
the time I turned around, it was at 40 and I was gone. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but anyway, that's how we sort of, it all started. And so then where, take us from there. Where did, did you guys, um, Matt, did you, I know you only live about oh, 20 minutes away from Cameron, so did you just end up going out there to start working for him or were you just training horses together or what was the sort of opportunity there? Uh, at the time, I was working for my parents in Gracemere. Um, my parents owned the Gracemere Bakery, so I was helping them out. Um, I've been out Springshaw working for a few months, and I came back to came back to the bakery at the start of um, the start of the year. And um, yeah, so pretty much after Landmark, I come home and thought um, I thought this would be great. I'd uh, I'd like the way this mare goes, and I'd like to learn more. So. When I got home, I think I think I actually had to bring Cameron home. I, he rang me one afternoon. He needed a lift to get home, so I I carted him back from Tamworth and dropped him home here. And, um, I think a couple of days later, I I built the carriage up to ask him if I could come out and and watch him and maybe work some horses with him. And and then yeah, from that day, he couldn't get rid of me get rid of me for a few years. So um so yeah, that's what it kicked off. And um, Cameron, have you ever had anyone else sort of work for you, like any younger people come up and, and stay this you know, period of time with you? Uh, probably not this period of time. Matt might have been coming here for four or five years now, was it? Yeah. Four or five years, but um, no, not, re- not not for long. Like there's been plenty of people come here. Um, you know, there's people coming here working horses all the time and coming and going, but probably none really. Uh, Teresa Lawrence stayed here for quite a while. She was a good hand, uh, but yeah, Matt Matt's probably been here. Matt just keeps coming, you know, and um, we become mates and and uh, just work horses together all the time. And I think yeah, it's just you know it's a lot more fun working, you know, with a mate, and and uh, that's what we do all the time, you know. Now, yeah. So I think uh, a lot. It's uh. I think you know it, plenty of people come here, and um, but you know they kind of leave thinking it's a little hard and it's a little bit dis- too disciplined. And how am I ever going to be able to do it? And, and uh, I guess Matt's the one, Matt's the one out of a hundreds that have that's kept coming back. And and kept, you know I think Matt showed up here for four years in a row, probably every day at three o'clock when he finished the bakery. He'd he'd come over here, and I'd be back from flying from the helicopter and mustering and um he'd be here have all the saddle horses saddled and ready to go and he never stopped coming oh yeah. that's 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 a pretty good way to yeah get some horses going but you know sort of what what's it been like having someone that's like-minded and you know willing to work hard I must i'd imagine it's a pretty good work environment um i think um the thing, mate, is is uh, you become mates because you're the, you know you have the same drive and the same ambitions, and um, you know you want to work horses the same, and you, you know, I think that's what that's what um, as you know, Matt was determined to keep coming back and 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 to learn what I had I, I could teach him, and he just kept coming back and kept doing it and doing it, and there's plenty of times he left here, and I thought he'll never see him again, and uh, he'd be back. Four years and a lot of tears, Paxton. <laughs> <laughs> when when the day that I thought he'd never come back over the grid, uh, he'd be here earlier and just kept showing up and just kept showing up. And 
I guess that's uh, how you sort of gonna, you know, that's how he's got where he's got. I guess. Yeah, and Maddie, how come you just kept showing up? I know a lot of people could have easily turned away and not come back to it, but why did you just keep coming back? Um, I don't know, mate. I've got a pretty big ego. I um, I hate not being able to achieve something, and um, yeah, it was just a big challenge for me. I I didn't really know if I was going to be able to do it right a certain way or or learn it, but I was going to give it a hundred percent. And if I went down sinking, I knew I had to go. So um, yeah, it was just something that that's sort of my personality. I don't like giving up until I I know that every last resort's been marked off. You know. Um, and I just, I just wanted to, I just, I just love the discipline and, and all that with it. And I think the more you do of something, the better you get. So I, I was determined to come back every day, whether it was going to be easy, hard, smiles or tears. I was, I was coming back. There was no, no, um, there was no reason to fail. I just, I, I was coming back no matter what. So, yeah. Yeah. No, that's pretty good. So moving along a bit. Cameron, where did your sort of horse journey begin? Where did you start? Where did your early horse influence come from? Um, I guess growing up as a kid, I mean, we always used horses for mustering. My family aren't horse people. They use horses for mustering. But um, so when my, my dad never ever competed or did anything with horses. Um, so, yeah, I know. I, I'm a, I got a grandfather that bred trotting horses and used to race them so maybe i got it from him i don't know but um we used to ride uh mustering all the time you know mustering and then i become a ringer and uh if we'd done a long day's work i'd be always going and get a young horse in the afternoon and i was always the why person why did a horse crossfire why did it change leads why you know i was always asking why a horse so any t- any spare minute i had i always rode horses even when i had nothing else to you know if that's just what I did, and then um, I've never I've never competed at all. But as a ringer, I remember being about twenty one or something. I was just working in stock camps as a ringer, and I was tailing wieners one day. And there was some the the country life had a stockman's challenge uh, picture on it, and uh, I just uh, thought one I thought this was good. Um, one day I'd like to do that. So I was sitting on my horse tailing wieners and I, there was a big sandstone rock there and I drew myself on this, uh, <laughs> I drew myself on this sandstone rock with a little rock of me holding this quart pot in my hand on this horse with a big swan neck, thinking that this would be the go. So uh, <laughs> once I, I don't, I don't know how I come at that, but I was just fascinated by this uh, thing called the Stockman's Challenge and uh, I didn't know what was involved, but. Once I drew it on that rock, that's just what I turned me mind to, and and um, uh, that's sort of how I started. <laughs> mm. Oh, that's that's a pretty interesting story. But sort of, who were sort of your um, major influences for the horse sides of things growing up? Where did you sort of you know start to learn you know the the, the answers to why horses were you know, doing certain things? Um. I was I grew up west of Clermont, so there wasn't a lot of not a lot of horse that that type of stuff. I mean, camp drafting, yeah, for sure, but um, not sort of much too too much there. But there was a school. Gordon McKinlay did a school in Clermont, and I so I gathered up this brumby that I'd run down, and 
took it in there. I always had horrible horses, and uh, I took it in there. And uh, old Gordon um, took a bit of a shine to me, I think, and um, he basically said, you know, you, you probably got a bit of talent, but you probably need to get some better horses. So um, he invited me down to his place and help, I helped him break in horses and put some through that rocky sail, and and um, then I started to learn, and he could answer a lot of my questions, and then I... I helped him put them horses through, and then I sort of got an interest in it then, and then I was lucky enough to get invited to America to go over there for eight months riding and breaking in horses, and I went with a guy called, with a bloke called Tony Mortimer and lived with him, and, and Tony was a good, is a good horseman and taught me a lot. And Then I went to Cutting Place and learned quite a bit from those guys, and then went to a reigning place and learned a bit from those guys, and, and of course, was just learning then, you know, um, then I come home and started to acquire some nice two-year-olds and started to do the Stockman's Challenge, you know, that's, and just, I think that, uh, Ian Francis, like, I've, I don't know how many DVDs of his I've worn out when I was young and read a lot of books trying to work it out and, but Ian Francis probably, Gordon McKinley was good and then Ian Francis was probably the style that I liked, but, you know, and then the cutting guys, like, I think I've annoyed everyone in the industry and um, they've all helped me, every single one of them, you know. But probably more yeah. based on an Ian, Ian Francis sort of a thing, probably. That sort of a style, I don't know why, always kind of suited me, but of course never really never really mastered that, of course. But <laughs> but um, that's what was kind of the deal I, I liked for some reason. Yeah, for sure. And then Matt, obviously watching Cameron, you know, and, and that style he had developed, is that sort of, you know, just that style was something you wanted that you were drawn to? Yeah, definitely. I just, um, yeah, I, I remember seeing Cameron as a, as a younger fella at places like Paradise and, and the local shows and he'd always rock up on a beautiful horse and, you know, for some reason, every time he'd ride past me, I always had my eyes on the horse and what he was doing and, and yeah, it was just, I just like the discipline of it. And I like the way that his horses go, you know, whether they're working cows or, or, or just cannering around or chasing a cow or, yeah, like obviously, um, over time, it's, you know, we've blended in my little bit of knowledge with camp drafting and his little bit of knowledge of everything else together. And yeah, it's been really good. Um, but yeah, the style, the, definitely the style. I, I just really liked it. And I just like the softness. I like, his horses always looked very comfortable doing something. They never looked worried. They never got, you know, they never got out of time. They never got out of shape. They were just very cool, calm, and collected, they were. Yeah, for sure. So, Cameron, what is your sort of training philosophy with your horses? Uh, I just think it's discipline, you know, and I just like a soft feel, you know, and you can have all the soft feel in the world, but it doesn't really mean much once you get a bit of pace up and, you know, if they don't learn to take a pull. I think what's difficult, and Matt's mastered that probably even better than me, is um, you can get a horse broken soft and, and the things that we, you know, want him to feel be nice and soft in the face. But I, I, I think what's very difficult is to have a soft feel, but it's speed and, you know, be able to pull him and go to the camp draft discipline. I think Matt's done a real good job of mastering that and securing young horses in 
like from going to that soft field to be able to gallop and take a pull and and um you know have a good foundation and base to go back to so i think he's actually done that better than i can do it um but you know i've learned along the way from matt as well as <clears throat> stuff that we we implement you know and, and put that deal back into him and he's uh i've never really i've never camp drafted to be honest with you uh, i've probably had seven or eight runs in my life and but it might be something I'll do later on. It's not that I don't like it. It's just uh, I never really had the time to time to do it. But um, it's something that I, I think is very difficult, and it's very difficult to maintain horses. And uh, I think Matt's doing it really well. Yeah. Well, on that maintenance side of things, what do you think goes into you know being able to keep a horse at a steady level? You know, obviously we expose them to some pretty high pressure situations. So sort of. Walk us through a bit, you know, in your mind, how do you sort of get them comfortable in a pressured uh, pressured area? Well, I think um, it's from going from to that square pen and then when you think he's sort of comfortable over there, you know, then, you know, we go into this arena here and chase bison or cattle or whatever we got at the time and follow follow them for, you know, a month or so until they learn to track them and then, we might go in the camp draft cutout and uh, once the horses are comfortable in that cutting pen, we take them over there and you can feel a horse change, especially if it's a little bit hot. You can feel a horse change as soon as you start getting into a tighter pen, into a camp draft pen, you know, uh, like a camp draft cutout pen. You can feel because it's more intense and it's more tighter and they get a little bit fractious and worried. So we don't string it together for a while. We might get them comfortable in there and, if they get a bit worried, we go back to the square pen for a couple of days. And I think it's important to not to string it all together. Like we just don't cut out and then just go out and chase it. Um, for a little while, we just break it up, you know. We just uh, do a bit of there and then go out there. And it takes a quite a long time until you can actually string it together so you don't build, you know, so you don't build insecurities into them. You know, when I was challenging and had those really good horses, by the time they went to them challenges, like they could string a run together probably and obviously we don't have to get the pegs at a camp as a at a, at a challenge, a stockman's challenge. So it makes it easier for us um, and easier on the horse. So, But they were exposed to it at home, you know, and had plenty of runs and they knew, you know, if they got insecure one day, well, we just stop doing that for a couple of days and go do something they can do and build it up and let it down and build it up and let it down. And some weeks you just, you might not go backwards, but you might just stay at the same level until he's ready again mentally and then go digging again for a little bit more. Yeah. So. Well, definitely. And then sort of talk to us a bit about, you know, as you are saying, it's one thing to get them broken soft and things, but talk to us a bit about on the mental side of horses, keeping them sound there and, you know, knowing that, ensuring that they know their job 100%. I think that, uh, and I prove it to myself all the time, and I see it a lot. You can have a horse, and it can be broke. You can pull its head left and right, and tuck its head in, and do it at a trot, canter, whatever. You know, having pulling left, right, and the cow nicely, and think he's good. But that doesn't mean a lot. Um, if you don't have him mentally, none of that means anything. It it really doesn't. You know, it's just it's. Uh, you can have him broke to death and think you've got him, but if he can't handle it mentally, well, it just all falls apart, and the broke thing that you think you had doesn't mean anything, you know? And just, uh, it, it's, 
one one thing is to get them broke, and then the next thing is to try and mentally try and slowly expose them to it so they can deal with it. And uh, I think that's a really that's probably the biggest part of it. We don't we don't you know we don't go mustering anymore. We don't have the miles put on them, so we got to we've got to train it all into them. So we've got to make up those rides all the time, you know. I mean, the, probably the best horses we probably ever rode is when we were kids and at, for chasing cattle because that's what they did. They chase cattle and you walk along for a mile or two then chase another one. And But we don't get that. We just sort of got to train it into them, you know, which is sad, you know. I think the best horses are made by doing them nice long days. And, but we don't have that privilege anymore. Yeah. So, how are you working on their mental state? What What are you physically doing to improve a mental state? Um, I just think we're very aware of overexposing them, and um, because once you do overexpose them, you, you go backwards. You might go backwards a couple of weeks, you know, or more. Um, I've got a cult here at the moment that we uh, he hit a bit of a wall, and it's just even the experience I've got with young horses and exposing them, we hit a wall with him and. And uh, he felt the pressure, so it took him a week. We just stayed at the same level for a week, and um, now he's back to going good again and, and confident never. But it seems you've got to keep going back to that good foundation, and if you've got that to go back to, they go, yep, right, okay. And overexposing them is the, is the thing, I guess, that you learn along the way that, um, you know, don't go too far with that. It's hard to get them back, and you go further backwards, you know. Yeah, so it's just about sure. we don't string it, the overexposure is trying to string a camp draft run together or a, in a stockman's challenge it's trying to string it together you know like if you do a big yard on a young like a, you know, if you're training at home you, and you, if you did a big yard on a horse and he was good don't swing the gate and go out after it you know like until he's comfortable in doing both things outside then we might and then we might one day string it together like that cult we strung a run together on him yesterday actually and uh he got you know got him around full course probably run a what we run matty 88 or something on him just say something like that paxton but today <laughs> i rode him i rode him again and um i just come out and tracked the bison around behind just to make sure that he wasn't worried and he wasn't because it's pretty of a bit of his nature and then instead of going in the camp draft cutout pen i worked him in the cutting pen and just so i don't overexpose him you know like you just you just can't keep doing it every day they just don't handle it so we just keep banking it banking the credits banking the credits until one day they just can handle it hmm. yeah for sure and then sort of how would you deal with you know when you're taking horses away and you know or or someone else might be there or there's some sort of difference you know what what are you sort of you know horses is very sensitive so how do you sort of deal with that side of thing you don't. You you got to you got to lose a certain percentage with young horses when you take them away from home. We try and you know take them somewhere to run them before you go anywhere. But um, I think if you if you haven't ever been from away from home, you can nearly halve the horse that you've got. You know, if he's a sensitive horse and wants to look around a lot, you can nearly halve what you've got. I think if you're gonna challenge him or draft him or even the cutting fellas, you know, they haul them everywhere for months to different places and work them. And I think get a young horse and take it to camp draft or challenge it and it's never been away from home i think you can nearly halve you know you can halve mentally what you've got there um because he's just not going to be listening and, and not you know he's not ready and he, he's not listening he's never been away from home and 
I think you got to you got to card them a fair bit before if you want to get serious about competing. You got to card them a bit before you go anywhere, or you just haven't got anything when you get there. And then yeah. that's when we really do uh, build the insecurities. Is their first time away from home? If you go and rip and pull on him and kick him in a camp draft type situation, or even a dry work situation, you scare him, and then he doesn't think that going away from home is that good. So I always tried to make sure that it was a little bit harder at home. Uh, than it ever really was at the thing. If I was, you know, gonna gonna make sure that they were exposed to everything they were gonna get exposed to, you know. Yeah, for sure. No, that's good. Well, Matt, talk to us a little bit about. Um, you know, we've talked about the mental state of horses, but what do you you do personally when you're sort of preparing? to go to a competition, are you mentally preparing yourself in some form? Talk to us a little bit about that. Um, for me personally, um, I've probably been to a few camp drafts in my time now um, and travelled a fair bit and, and done titles and things like that. So mentally for me, um, it's not really daunting or worrying or um, anything like that for myself. But, um, yeah, for my horse's point of view, I try and, my old horses, I try to work them slow and long and, and keep things comfortable. And, you know, if I've got a bit of a problem or a little bit of a insecurity somewhere, whether it's chasing or cutting one out, I try and chip away through that through the week between drafts or, or before the draft. Um, and then, yeah, with the younger ones, same deal. Just keep working on individual things every day and, and work on their weaknesses and every day, the ride's different, you know. What I did today is going to be different to what I do tomorrow. So, um, you know, like Cameron was saying, today, he, he yesterday he strung a few runs together and, and then tomorrow, the next day, he um, just tracked the bison around and, and worked him in the square pen. So I think it's just break, it's just breaking it up and, and making it easier for the horse. Um, and, yeah, just, just trying to keep him confident and, Obviously, if you've got a problem or an insecurity, go ahead and chip away at trying to um, trying to fix it. And and yeah, sometimes that problem it might not be. It might take more than a week. It might take you a couple of weeks to fix it. But um, just make sure you you're working towards it and and know what you want what you want to achieve out of you know out of fixing the problem. So yeah, for sure. But so when you're preparing for a competition yourself, do you ever get nervous or you know deal with that sort of thing? Um, for me, not really, like as in first go rounds and stuff like that. Um, I probably don't get very nervous, but obviously when you get to the pointy end of the stick and you're in a final and it's a big final or you're up against some good people and you've probably, if I ever get worried or a little bit anxious, it, it's always when I've got the top score. Um, you know, it's it, to lead, to lead something into a final is a, a big sort of, thing to hold on your shoulders as well for me as a personal thing um i try obviously want to end up there at the end of it so um and obviously cattle and and situations can change that obviously but um yeah i don't get too nervous through the through the weekends unless it's in a big final or or i'm um or i'm leading it so yeah just that's just yeah they're the things for me yeah fair enough cameron what about you do you ever I know you said you haven't drafted much, but you know, in the challenge deal or the cutting deal, did you, did you sort of ever get nervous? And how do you sort of deal with that sort of side? Uh, 
it's a challenge and I probably didn't get, I mean, cutting makes me more nervous because I never probably really knew what I was doing so much, but, um, and probably still don't, but, um, but I enjoy competing. I, re- I really like it. With the challenge thing, I think I'd, um, mentally, mentally, I probably don't try and get involved in what my mind, you know, your mind, I guess, is, is it wants to make you nervous and it wants, you know, it can get you, get you off track quite quickly if you want to get involved in it and in what it's trying to get you to get involved in. I think the people that compete the best are the ones that are um, almost mindful of that and don't get involved in what their mind's trying to get them to, you know, what emotion it's trying to, you know, whether it's a nervousness and then people, you know, spin too much or they override the horse. I think that when we were all guilty of that, um, but I think the people that probably compete the best are the ones that are mindful for that and can block that out a little bit and don't get involved in, in that kind of, um, what the mind's trying to get you to be involved in. I think if you can stay, stay aware or, you know, aware of that. And, you know, I think, I think you can be a good competitor. Yeah. When it comes, like when Matt said, when it comes to a finals and things like that, the person that can stay the most centered there is going to be the, probably the one that's going to pull it off. Mm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And sort of, you know, would you say having a horse underneath you that you know is confident, you know, helps with your sort of mental state too? No doubt about it. I mean, I've been lucky to have probably two horses that in my life probably, and I haven't showed a lot of horses either, don't get me wrong, but probably a horse called One More Daddy and then the mare I had called Jewel. It didn't matter when your time was or when you were going or what you're in, you felt so confident on them that you were dying for your go because they were good at what they did and they were, you know, you knew they were never going to let you down. It's very, I was lucky. I've been lucky enough to have two horses like that. Um, I've had a lot of good horses, but they were, the, they were the two brilliant ones. And when you're riding on those horses, you just, you, you just, you don't get nervous because then they, they, you don't feel like they're going to let you down or they're going to cheat or they're going to, you know, not listen or not try. You know, that, that's very rare. So the, yeah, it's horsepower, I believe. And that's why we're always striving. You know, to breed better horses, to get better genetics, to try and get the horses that suit whatever we're trying to do, um, and get them as well bred as you can, have their mothers and their fathers as good as you can, so that you can, you know, you can be confident riding in on a good horse. If you're not sure what he's going to do, and he's not going to try, well, then you you probably may be a little bit nervous. Horse power can eliminate that. So sort of. Talk to us a little bit about Jill. I know she's a pretty well-known mare and, and be, had a big impact on your life, but sort of, you know, talk us through a bit, you know, where did you get her and what was sort of the story behind her? Uh, I just bought her out of the, uh, what's it? The uh, sale, the Tamworth sale, I think. Yeah, the NCHA sale. When it used to be over in the old shed, I bought her as a two-year-old off Richard Bull. And she's out of a Freckles Oak mare. And uh, she was just a beautiful looking animal and uh, just broken in. And um, so I bought her and brought her home. And she was just, yeah, she was probably, I had another good spin effects mare called Christmas Spin. They're the first two horses, probably the first two horses I had of my own. That, and I paid 30000 for Christmas. She was the first horse I ever bought. So she taught me what cow was in a horse. She's still probably the most cowish horse I've ever ridden. And it was the first horse I ever bought. 
And um, I always wanted to own a Spinifex mare growing up as a kid. I wanted to own a Spinifex mare, so I saved up everything I had. And I'd been to a... I took some Brumby horses or a couple of wild horses that I took to the first challenge and uh, I I didn't make a final. I I trained them to death and I didn't make a final and uh, everyone else was riding Acres Destinies or a Spinifex and and I thought, oh, God, this is not the go. <laughs> so I went and bought myself one the next year, or that might have been the year after I saved up and went and bought this Spinifex mare and trained her like I did the others and that was the only difference is just I needed... I wanted horse, I needed horsepower, you know, something to help me out. So then that taught me, I guess, it taught me horsepower was the a big ingredient of, of horse training. Um, and that Spinifex mare taught me a lot. And then I was lucky enough to get Jewel. And um, uh, she just, you felt invincible on her. She was easy to train. She was always beautiful looking. And, and um, so she was very special. And then after that, I probably got an even special, more special horse. Well, Mac and Gale's horse, that one more daddy, and uh, I, that's just an incredible animal. And Todd Graham had him before me, and of course, coming from Todd, you know what sort of, you know, how he was trained was so brilliant, and that even helped me to get to another level, you know, after having a horse from Todd and how it, how it, you know, pulled its nose left and right, good, and there's probably no one better than Todd in the country, and so that was good to get a horse from him and learn that feel. Um, but that horse was outstanding. Um, I don't know if I'll ever have another horse like him. Um, he might, you know, he was just a, just a great, great animal. Did you have some mm. sort of emotional connection with them? Were they sort of, you know, that did it, was it something else that sort of brought them to, you know, that strong level that you had with them in that great relationship? Uh, a bit of a personal thing, I suppose. I, I had a bad, I had a fatal, I was involved in a fatal helicopter accident and a uh, bit of a long story there, but it wasn't good. And um, I, I guess I struggled for years, you know, to deal with the guilt and to deal with the, the uh, everything that went with that. And uh, I think horses were the thing that were my drug that saved me. So I, I kind of lived with Jewel and, and dad, my old daddy, you know, and at night, I guess, when you couldn't sleep and you got nightmares and things like that, and I'd go out there and sit with those horses at night, and quite often you'd wake up in the morning and uh, for someone like Jewel, there might have been six horses in a paddock, but she'd be the one there in the morning with her nose still on your shoulder, uh, still standing there with you at daylight. And, and then one more daddy was the same. The next year I had one more daddy. He was a year younger. And I was still struggling with, with what I was dealing with. And I mean, horses helped me through that. That's why I probably, those horses were spo so special. I just lived with those horses, you know, day and night. And for some reason, they, um, I think when you do, when you live with those horses like that, you have a connection with them, but they were special. But that one more daddy, I guess those sort of animals to come into your life at the right time to make you, to keep you going and make you feel good. And, um, I think they can save your life at times, you know, those really good animals and make you keep going. Yeah. So he, he's a, he's an extremely special horse, mate. And I, I, there was a, there was a thing, Gail, I mean, you know, Gail actually had that bad accident. Gail and Mac, you know, it was nicer people as you want to meet. And I travel with them quite a lot with that horse. And there was something there between her and that horse, you know, he, 
you know, he might feel a bit down and a bit flat, that horse or something, or a bit tired, and for some reason she'd pat him and whisper in his ear and, and uh, you know, rub him. And, you know, as a stallion, he just, when she was around, he was, you know, ever go near him, she was calm and, you know, maybe he just, he always lifted that horse when she was around. So I don't know, he's just, there was something special about that horse. There was something really special about him and maybe he just, at that, he just come into people's lives at the right time, I suppose. Well, keeping along the lines of um, good horses, you guys have um, managed to sell some pretty high-dollar horses at um, the Nutrient Classic and had some great success there. Um, well, Maddie, why don't you talk to us a little bit about some of the horses that you've taken down there and had a bit of success and, and what particularly, what, what was it about them or, or what, what you sort of think is the article that was you know, appropriate to take down there. Um, yeah, we put some horses through there, through that sale now, probably well, three, four years in a row. And, um, one horse that I in particular liked, um, was a, was a four year old stallion by Cat in a Hat out of Cam's good man called Jewel. And, um, he was just a, a, he was a cult. Um, and he was just stunning. He, um, the, his shape and, and his presence, um, were very strong. Um, they're very unique. Um, and, um, and yeah, he was, he, for me, um, trying to promote, um, uh, if, you know, if I own Jewel or my mare, um, that's the sort of horse I want to, I want to present, um, in public for sale. Um, he was, he just had a really good aura around him. He was great type. Um, he was very eye catching. He was a, he was a stallion that, you know, you could look around the corner and look at him and then you'd have to, you'd have to pull up and, and give all your attention to, um, to just keep looking at him. He just had an ability to be able to catch your eye. Um, so he was one that um, that got trained through the program here and, and he had a great ability, I think, from a two-year-old on onwards to when we sold him. He, you know, he was a great, great horse. He was well-mannered. He was very easy to ride. He was, he had a very good brain. Um, and yeah, he's, he's something personally for myself would be something I'd like to, um, to breed and, and promote and, and sell in the future to come he was a a great individual and he's gone on to i think he won a a restricted and a stallion draft when he was four year old and and yeah he's been one one for me in particular that that we took down there that was um that we sold i think he might have made fifty six or eight thousand dollars and and yeah um the person that owns him is having a lot of fun with him and and yeah that's that's what we well that's what i'd like and and Cameron like to sell on you know good going um typey well-trained, um, you know, horses. I added it up, Paxton, there a while back um, between Matt and I in the last five years, like my like my horses, but Matty and I had trained them. Matt trained some, I trained some. It was like, I think it was $890,000 worth of horses that we've trained out of here and sold, just, you know, just sold onto people and they've gone, you know, all over the country. Um, yeah, so... I forget the number of horses it was, but it was it was something like eight hundred ninety thousand dollars worth of horses. So that's a, it's a it's a lot of riding and and um, a lot of laughs and a lot of good times doing it. You know, yeah, for sure. And sort of, well, what was your sort of um, you know thought process in in selling a horse down there? You know, it's obviously it's not the easiest thing to do, but you know, did you have in mind the sort of article you wanted to present to everyone down there? Um. 
probably been all sort of shapes and sizes of horses, but I think, you know, just, uh, we just, you know, our horses, the way it's had a lot of riding, you know, we've ridden them a lot, trained them a lot, ridden them, ridden them a lot, you know, and I think we just tried to, you know, work them a lot and expose them to a lot of things so people could go on and have a bit of a go at them, you know, and have a bit of a fun with them. And it's very enjoyable that seeing your horses go to people and they, you know, go and enjoy them. They may not win on them or anything like that, but they'll enjoy them for what they want to do, you know, like that's, a, there's a lot of joy in that. Um, but yeah, I, I think we're all, you know, we're all trying to breed them better and better and uh, better looking and more, you know, with more ability all the time, I suppose. Yeah, uh, fair enough. Well, on that, how how would you say we can like move forward in the cow horse industry? You know, what are some of the things you guys sort of believe that we need to sort of get better at or or focus on? in making our industry progress, you know, being whether it's cutting camp drafting or just any cow-related horse sport? Um, probably a great question, that one. Um, and I suppose it's a question oftenly thought by um, by a lot of people. Um, I think, you know, obviously one topic that you could build on is probably prize money is something that, you know, obviously people do their great, do their best to get sponsorship and things like that. But, um, great people, um, in like someone in particular, like Terry Snow, that's started a big, a big camp draft down there in Canberra. And, you know, I think that's been really great for the industry, you know, um, even way up here in Queensland, it's something that people are, uh, you know, looking forward to want to go down and compete and go down to his beautiful setup down there. And, um, and the prize money, you know, like just to have a go at, you know, trying to win a hundred thousand dollars by winning a camp draft. Um, I think, you know, is, is one great topic. Um, you know, prize money for me is, is probably a, a topic, you know, I think if I want to go to a camp draft, I would like to try and win maybe one of the bigger ones that's about and the one with the most money. So, um, I think that's one, one area. Um, what do you, Cameron? What do you think? Oh, yeah, it depends what you, um, I think, yeah, money's always a big thing that drives, that drives everything to get for people to get better and more competitive and more, um, you know, money's always a big thing. The more the prize money, the more you train for it, the more people you got in it, the more everything, you know, but it's new people come to the sport, you know, um, think about, you know, it's a bit like racehorses, people, people spend money because they're going to win money. So. I think, um, you know, it, it'll involve, I think, prize more prize money will involve new people, new clients, um, you know, more horses, more horses getting trained, more horses getting sold. Um, I think it's it's a big thing for the industry. I think, you know, money talks and, and yeah, like, obviously, everyone tries their best at where they are right now, but I think, yeah, something for the future, if we can... Keep keep building on that. I think um I think you know we've got a good shot of of building and growing as a cow horse community and yeah yeah uh, that's fair enough. Cameron, good question. Cameron, did you um growing up? Obviously, I've always loved horses and you know like training them. Did you ever think of training um sort of like at the moment, or you've remained a non pro rider for? pretty much, well, for most of your life. Did you ever sort of think about going into the horse training business? No. No, I never did. I 
it was always a hobby for me and I always wanted to enjoy it. If I come home from work, you know, um, I, I was just me hop like me hobby or something where I'd enjoy, you know, and I always wanted it to be me hobby and I was never really serious. I uh, got serious in it as far as competing. It was just, if I got to ride, I got to ride in the afternoons. If I never, I never, I was always more interested in cattle, I suppose, and land rather than winning something on a horse. But, um, um, but no, I, I don't, I, I nearly stayed in America at the time when I went there, I was offered a couple of good jobs and obviously I still had a lot to learn and still do, but I sometimes wonder whether what I, what I, you know, if I had a stuck to it and kept doing it. Um, but I just always had a hobby and I still love it. And I only ever ride two or three horses in the afternoon if I can. And hopefully they're pretty good ones and make you smile. And, um, yeah. Always trying to breed something a little bit better or get something a bit different. And I think that's, that's what you said about before, looking at the horse aspect. You know, we're breeding, we're breeding horses better all the time and getting them better and getting, you know, as far as cutting, if you're going to talk about cutting, go. People are breeding horses from America and importing mares and then breeding to them stallions. And you can see the cutting horses every year getting better and better. And, um, I'm not necessarily, I'm not necessarily a camp drafter, but I love watching it and love doing it. And, I even just got a couple of con men, two-year-olds that, you know, uh, quite a lot of people said they won't suit what how you ride, but um, we've broken them in and, and uh, the, I just absolutely love them, you know. They, they, they're they lovely horses and you can see why people, you know, they're chasing cattle around on them now and you can see why people like those horses and why they're so popular and, and um, you know, for that sport, for that particular sport, you can feel in these two-year-olds just how brilliant they are and so i'm enjoying those and um maybe get to camp draft them one day maybe or well, my son will anyway if he if he if he wants to keep doing that but yeah i think it's just breeding better horses for breeding breeding better horses for the sport that you like it also makes it more spectacular to watch you know it's if we all had 10 horses like one more daddy in the in the challenge industry it'd be hell of a final to watch and that's the kind of finals that you want to go and watch. You know, there's nothing better than going to paradise or those big drafts and watching the finals, you know, and seeing all those great guys and those great horses. It, it's that, that's what makes it, you know, a good thing to watch, doesn't it? Bet more horsepower, better horses, you know? Yeah, oh, definitely. Absolutely. So then, um, just jump back a bit, but like Maddie, sort of what was your decision to become a horse trainer? Um, you know, how come you, stepped into that to that side of things when um you know that it, was it always an uh an option for you or sort of talk us through the process of you deciding to become a horse trainer um good question um i probably intentionally at the start you know i always knew i wanted to be involved in horses and, and i wanted to be competitive and and all things like that but um it wasn't a at the start, it wasn't intentions that I was going to become a horse trainer. I obviously came to Cameron's to get more knowledge and, and that was just for me to get better in myself and, and better with the, my own horses that I had. And, um, I think the pathway just sort of kept leading that way. I, I had to go up flying helicopters with Cam and that didn't end up real well. And <laughs> we, um, yeah, we were nearly in a parachute a few times. So I pulled the pin on that and Cameron said, well, you're only really good at one thing, so you might as well go and do it. So <laughs> I, um, yeah, just as, as we went along, um, 
couple of great mates of Cameron's sort of stepped in and gave me a couple of mares to camp draft and yeah, it sort of just it just ended up that way and then obviously you know, I love riding horses every day. I probably couldn't think of anything else I'd really want to do, so it sort of just become that way and as I went along I never really, you know, wasn't a thing that I was, you know, advertising or doing anything. It's just I was just riding a few horses and working here at Cameron's and, and through my parents at their their business and then, then yeah, it sort of just led me here to to in the yeah, call you know, be called a horse trainer I guess and yeah, there was no real certain path that that's what I was gonna do. It just sort of it ended up that way. Yeah, okay. And what about sort of when you made the decision, you know, was, you know, were you pretty happy with that and were you all into it then or sort of did you ever still have any uncertainties? Oh, I probably always, you know, obviously there's uncertainty in everything that you do. Um, so obviously I thought of a few things like that, but it just sort of ended up that way. Like I, I ended up getting a few horses through Cameron's mates and then they sort of stayed around and obviously that's what I was working on. So obviously something you work on every day, you hope to get better at. And and I, and I liked working it, you know, I liked working horses every day and it just, as I went along, it just never left, you know, like I never got to the point where I got sour and thought, Oh no, I don't want to do this. I, I'd like to go and try something else. It was, you know, it was, how am I going to get this horse better and how am I going to get better? And, and yeah, it was sort of, it was just something that, that went along and it just obviously part of me, like I loved horses and um, there was probably wasn't the day where I've gone, look, I'm going to be a horse trainer. I just, I loved it that much. I never even thought about it and I just kept, you know, to a certain degree, I just kept going with it. And obviously as you go along, someone says you're a horse trainer and you go, oh yeah, I suppose so, you know, and you probably don't, I probably never thought of it until now, obviously, to to know that I'm a, you know, part of a horse training business and and yeah it was probably it was never planned really it was just through the love and passion of horses even from a little kid not even coming from a horse family background I always had horses plastic toy horses and pictures of horses on internets and on the laptop and and yeah like go back to when I was a bit younger probably high school age you know I remember having pictures of Cameron on one more daddy and fellas like you know um, Huey Miles and Munich Chick on me wall or Todd Graham on one more spin, you know, I, I, I just had a real, you know, a passion and love for horses. So it sort of, it's just led me to where I am now. Yeah. I mean, Cameron, did you, obviously you saw Matt had a fair bit of talent. Did you sort of, you know, tell him at some point that it's probably a good idea to, you know, keep going at that sort of thing? <laughs> <laughs> uh... I don't know. I don't think I've been ever recognised for being, <laughs> for being good. I, uh, I was yeah. going to say, let Matt, let Matt ask. He always says to me, you never tell me I'm fucking doing any good. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know, mate. I, I, um, I, I, just, I just think he's just passionate and uh, lives and breathes horses and, you know, his best mates have got, you know, horses and, and you know, that's what he's good at and that's what he's passionate about and he's very talented at it and, and always from the first day he come here, you know, like that black man when he first ever come here, he rode her better than me and put her around for, you know, we had some good cows in here and he, he put it around straight away, you know, and um, so, yeah, he's just got a natural talent and natural feel, I suppose, and and then he's obsessed with it and but he, 
my guess, you know. He's got a great future in, in whatever he's going to do with horses, you know. Yeah, for sure. It's so just um, a natural thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's not all about horses, you know. It's about, um, not all about horses. It's a lot of good mateship and a lot of fun times and, um, you know, things like yeah, that. Yeah, well... It's just a lot of fun, you know, working horses and having a few beers and working horses and laughing and, you know, I think you can be, I just know in myself, maybe it was a bit more situational. I think you can get addicted to winning and uh, I think that can become unhealthy. And, um, I think you got to keep an eye on that. And I think it's good to have someone around you if you're going to be young and going to be good at what you do to keep you grounded and keep you, you know, keep you on the right track and, Winning is a terrible, like I said, winning is a terrible drug and it can consume you because, you know, you've got to keep enough horses coming to win the next year and win the next year after that. And they all got to be coming along as two-year-olds. And I think the people that you love the most and they're around you the most can get left behind because you're constantly working on, you know, trying to uh, be that hero and, and staying in the in the top 5% of what you're trying to do. And... um yeah, it can become a bit of a, a being addictive to winning become can come become a very unhealthy thing. So how would you sort of manage that? We try to back off that a bit now. Ah, oh, well, I didn't manage it very well to be honest with you, but I think that it's uh, you know good for someone like for Matt to be around someone that probably didn't get it that right, you know, and um, you know to to help him with the pitfalls of it and. It's very hard to keep everybody happy when you're striving to win all the time and work hard and, you know, to, to stay at the top of something and try and achieve everything. I think it's a, it's hard to, I take my hat off to anyone that can balance it and get it reasonably right, get life right and, and be very successful, you know. Um, I think you always need, you can have someone you look up to to keep you on the right track. And even if you've got that subversion in your life that's made all the mistakes, then, uh, like some Matt seen. <laughs> I guess one of the best things Matt's got from me is to see someone that's made a, a lot of mistakes and and uh, can say, well, I don't want to do what he does in a lot of areas. So <laughs> as good as I can help him in other areas, he, he looks at me and goes, well, I'm not going to do what he's done, the dickhead. <laughs> so I think that's a big part of it too, you know, and quite often um, we have those, you know, deeper conversations and, and it's good to have a good mate. You know, I can rip him into gear every now and again, and he can ring ring me up and rip me into gear. So I think that's that's very important. That part of it to have mates like that that you know that can pull you up when you're getting out of line, and they can see yeah. it. Yeah. So Matt, Matt, what's yeah. your take on that? Yeah, no, definitely. It's um, I think to have a mentor that really, you know, I probably the best feeling in the world out of. Doing anything, doesn't matter if it's sport or a job or, or just general life, I think, you know, I think it's just great to have, have a mentor, um, looking over your shoulder that actually wants to see you do well, you know, and, um, Cam's probably played, played a big part of that, um, that role for me in, in the last five years and, um, you know, made a few buggers up, bugger ups and, you know, he's rang and said, Oh, look, you know, you probably could have done that better. And, um, to have someone like that's, you know, it's impeccable. You can't compare it to anything. And, um, yeah, it's probably been something that's led me to where I am now. I'm not saying I'm anyone special or don't worry. We all make, we all make bugger ups and, and, um, yeah, and probably learning, 
if anything, I'll probably learn how to maintain and, and, and get myself out of a situation that I've buggered up, you know, it's probably something that I've probably tried to learn as I've gone along, you know, if you make a bugger up, put your hand up for it and say, you know, own up to it and, and keep moving forward and, and make it better for next time so it doesn't happen. So, um, yeah, for me, I think to be able to come back from a weekend or, or something personal happens in your life and you can ring somebody and say, look, I don't know what's going on here. Can you help me? Um, yeah, it's it's very good feeling to have someone behind you that wants the best for you. So, yeah, it's probably one thing that you probably can't thank someone enough for, but I suppose there's plenty of other times where you got to put up with him too. So, it, um, yeah, it's a it's a good thing. It's uh, it's pretty mutual. And now, what about you guys? Just mentioned before um, the word success, and you know, success can mean a lot of things, and you know, it can be determined by you know how many events you've won or or whatever. But sort of in in your guys' minds, what sort of success mean to you? <laughs> Oh, I'm not coming in on that. I know what failure is, but. (laughs) I think anyone, I don't know, I probably see success as anyone having a go, you know, like I think to me that's success, you know, I've got um, a really good clientele base and, and in my opinion, they're all successful, you know, like they all have great businesses. They're all striving to do better. They're all, all learning and, um, you know, they're all, they're all getting a bit of success through their um, ability to try hard and and work on things. So I, th- I think success isn't just winning, or you know, it's it's learning and growing. And um, yeah, it's, it's you know, I've got a lot of respect for anyone that's that's you know started from not knowing something and building and growing. Um, like I said, my some of my clients go from miners to property owners to construction you know construction workers to yard builders to you know from everything like that um so yeah it's it's a it's a success probably isn't one thing um in particular it's just for me i think success is someone you know having a crack and and learning and growing growing and i think someone that you know that has success whether it's whatever he does is coming from learning and growing so I think whatever well, you're learning in ground, that's that's pretty much successful. Yeah. Man. Cameron, have you got anything to add, mate? <laughs> <laughs> mate, I think a success in your success in your eyes changes all the time from year to year, and you know what you thought success was when you were twenty is different at thirty and a different at forty, and um, you know it keeps changing all the time. You know what I thought was important, you know. 20 years ago is different now, you know, like, so I think your experiences in life, what you think is successful, um, probably changes all the time, but, and now mine have changed again. So, um, I think success is someone, I suppose that can, you know, can adapt to his surroundings. Yeah. Just, um, trying to be as good a person as you can. And we're changing all the time and trying to get better. And, and, uh, I mean, for myself, I just, you know, just uh, I don't know, I like my kids, and I guess I want to be a good dad and grow them, grow up, and got good mates. And I don't know what success is. You know, you 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 save up, you you get a, you know, you breed good horses, you breed good cattle, you you acquire some land and help your children out. And as long as they're good and happy, it, that you know, 
and you can stay healthy. I think that's pretty good. Oh, definitely. And I think it just keeps changing. Sort of, Matty, you've um, you know, you've obviously grown up around some pretty pretty successful and interesting people. You know, who are some, who have been some of your other major influences? You know, especially in the horse, well, in in life in general. In the horse side of things, I've been fortunate enough to spend a fair bit of time with um, Stevie and Pete Comiskey and and um, yeah, I, I, you know, they're great. I class them as great mates, and um, yeah, just being a young person for me, I'm not, not very old, so um, to have blokes like that in the in the in, in the camp draft industry for me is is awesome. You know, we always joking about and. Um and and tips and and learning and you know I take a lot of credit even from away from the horse part of things with them guys you know like um someone like Pete you know I I really I really respect him for who he is and and you know the the ability to be able to um you know to camp draft at a very high level and and still make time for everybody um I think you know I try and try and strive to to be like that, you know, he, he, he competes at such a high level and, and, and can win, but then he also makes time for everybody, you know, he always says hello and, you know, he always catches up with people and, and he's a very social butterfly and, um, you know, that's something in particular I tried, I'd like to try and work on for myself and, and, and Stevie, you know, very humble guys, you know, after winning or losing or whatever, they're so humble, you know, and I think being a competitor, that's a, that's a big thing to have is to be humble and, and, you know, win or lose, you know, it's a great, it's a great outcome. It's good to be here and, and yeah. And, um, so they, you know, for the horse side of things, they're probably two guys that I've got to spend a fair bit of time with. And I've obviously got a few mates my age that we always, you know, hang out with and stuff like that. And, and then probably on the business side of things, probably, I'd call it, um, there's a bloke by the name of Jason Penny that he was probably the first guy that ever really sent me an outside horse and he's a great mate of Cameron's and he's a very successful business owner and, and he's another great mentor for myself, you know, with life and business and moving forward, you know, what, what could I do better? What could I, you know, what could I invest in? And, um, I think, you know, he's another, another person that's been a big part of my career in the last, few years um he's someone always to look back with and have a laugh with and it's great because you know me and cam and him are a good pretty pretty close mates so yeah it's 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 pretty good to have like him in particular as well you know being the first person to maybe put trust in me with his horses um and yeah like we've also had great times by winning a few things on his horses and having a bit of success I think I'd have to mention, um, obviously, your parents own the bakery, and um, they're probably some of the hardest working people I've ever met. Sort of, what's it been like growing up around that? Oh, it's it's a owning a bakery, mate. You you don't ever get away from it, and um, they they're two incredible people. They um, the amount of hours and time they put into into a business is incredible. I, you know, there's no words for it other than incredible. They, um, my father, he, he's worked nearly seven days a week for, I don't even know how long. I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even like to even imagine it. It's, um, yeah, he's just a, just a machine. He, he wakes up every night and goes to work and, 
and you can't get away from it. And, and at one o'clock in the morning, and he yeah, starts. Yeah, starts at eleven o'clock at night, and doesn't finish till midday the next day. And um, probably for myself, you know, they've given me a massive opportunity as a as a kid with the horses, and um, you know, one thing that you know I never really hear from them is you know after all them hours and seven days a week and not being able to get away from it, you know, not once do you hear him say, you know, oh, geez, I'm tired today, you know, like, so, yeah, it's, they're, they're very good role models. I see them as role models, you know, I strive to probably try and be like my dad a lot. It's probably um, in, in the way that, you know, he, he's a provider and he's been a big provider for our family and, and, you know, if we wanted to, we wanted to go to a good school. We were allowed to go to a good school. If we wanted a new football, we got the new football. And um, yeah, that they're, they're just they're incredible people. And and yeah, they just they they do really well at what they do. And it's and it's been a successful business. It's made our our family be able to do whatever we wanted to do, pretty much. And and um, and yeah, without them and the opportunity they've um, gave me, I I wouldn't be here today. So. It, uh, they played a, probably the most the most part of the role through my success from from a little boy to now. So, um, so yeah, it's been great. And um, yeah, they they continue on to still work. You know, they, <laughs> yeah, it's incredible, really. That's yeah, for sure. Did you get to meet them, Paxton, when you were up? Yeah, you yeah, wouldn't I you? did. You get to meet Barb yeah, and yeah. Perry. Lovely. They were awesome. Yeah. I think you wouldn't. You wouldn't find a more beautiful uh, lady than Barb Moffat, you know. I mean, what she's even done for our family and and uh, a friend, you know. Like, you just everyone speaks very highly of her as well, you know. And just she's a beautiful lady, and so that might be where Matt gets it from. <laughs> 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 uh, absolutely. Now, well, that's pretty good, guys. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add? Thanks for the thanks for coming up and. Um... Once again, I'd like to thank Ben Rossiter for, for thinking of me up here and and uh, let me be part of his program, Camp Draft Training Online. And, um, and yeah, if you haven't seen it, jump online and there's some great people on there with some some great tips and some great advice. And and yeah, hook in and, and learn. I think is the best thing. So I'd like to thank him once again and thank you for coming up. And um, yeah, we had a great time. So thank uh, you. Thanks, guys. It's that's really good. Well, um, yeah, been enjoying doing this, and yeah, thanks, Cameron, for getting on here and, and joining us for the podcast. It, um, yeah, it's been good having you on here. Uh, all good, Paxton, and it was nice to meet you and come up and um, you know your professionalism, the way you did all this, and um, you know even the way you ride yourself. You got a big, you know, big future in the industry, and this is a great thing you're doing here, and you're doing it so professional and um, good on you. Well, guys, that's the interview with Matt Moffat and Cameron Parker. We sure hope you enjoyed it. And a big shout-out to them both. Thanks for doing that, guys. You're bloody awesome, and it was yeah, great fun. Thought it was a pretty interesting story about how good mateships formed and how those two have had a great influence on one another and had a big impact in the horse industry. They are certainly great horsemen and great role models. Well, guys, that's going to about do us for this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed our interview and we'll be sure to catch you next time. I man ties and suits don't ride in limousines. I wear these dirty cowboy boots, blue denims in my jeans. I smoke the 
dust So buckle up, I ignite like kerosene But at the end of the day, I earn my pay And a rambler man it seems One shot, two shot, baby, let's ride this rodeo Three shot, four, five, honey, I'm the rebel One step, two step, baby, put your foot flat to the floor I'm not a first-class citizen I know every backtrack out of here I'll outrun you if I can Feel the rush, the push and chub I'm like a flame almost a fire And if you're trying to work my buttons You've got a madman's dark desire One shot, 